Can you imagine growing up on a motorcycle adventure, literally? You learn to speak the languages of the countries you're in, you study with books from a school you've never seen, and the daily grind and reward of travel is your reality. Is it adventure or just your life? I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you're going to want a compact and reliable tire inflation method, and the Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio, made in the USA, and comes with a lifetime warranty. And Motorcycle Consumer News Magazine just chose the Cycle Pump as their top pick in a compressor shakedown. Their website, www.cyclepump.com. I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hickstead. Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Michelle Lampier. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schmutz. Brett Tatt. Zoe Cano. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Rowe. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Witt. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Carol DeVell. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using their unique strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. And that has gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com The MotoBreeze chain oiler is powered by wind pressure that automatically adjusts for speed. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers oil to your chain with a felt pad that's mounted on your swing arm, which eliminates the problems of exposed nozzles near your sprockets. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets and forget about the messy spray oil. www.motobreeze.com. That's two I's in there. www.motobreeze.com. David and Amy Woodburn spent the better part of a decade traveling with their young daughter in a sidecar while they explored the world. On this episode, we have a refreshingly open and honest account of their life on the road, which didn't always go as planned, but always had an element of adventure in it. The Woodburns now live in the U.S., and they make their living by specializing in old BMW and British motorcycles. Their daughter, Matea, the one that was in the sidecar, is now grown up, moved out, and married. This is an account of their travels. My name is Amy Woodburn. I'm originally from the Philippines. Yeah, my name's David Woodburn. I'm from Queensland, uh, northeastern Australia. I'm a carpenter joiner by trade, but I've done a lot of things. I've shot horses, I've worked on fishing boats, I've done all kinds of work in the bush in Australia. And uh, we run a shop here, we fix old BMWs and old uh, British bikes. David and Emmy, welcome to Venture Rider Radio. Thank you very much. Thank you. 
So the, the shop that you just mentioned that you have is called Barnsley Motor Works. What is that all about? When we were about seven years into our world travel, we stopped in Barnsley. We'd done it a couple of times with an old couple we knew from previous trip in China, and they used to go to China, and we had house sit, and I'd repair the bike ready to go back out to India or wherever we were going. And one night I finished the bike on a Saturday evening. I'd spent six weeks fettling it with uh, in bad conditions with secondhand parts. And I finished the bike and the next morning it wasn't there. Some boys had stolen it. So we lost our motorbike, which was fine. But then they found the motorbike. The coppers found the motorbike. That that's when our problem started. So we had to build another motor. The sidecar was missing, our tools, our spares, our manual was missing, and the bike was damaged. We had to rebuild it. We had to rebuild another sidecar. But the working class people of Barnsley, they heard us speak on the wireless, and they'd seen us previously on the television, and it also got in the newspapers that these people had travelled around the world and they'd come to the bastion of civilization and gotten ripped off. Hmm. So working class people just came forward and helped us, gave me some spanners, gave me 10 quid, gave me bits and pieces to build a new sidecar with. And as a testimony to the working class heroes of uh, Barnsley, which is Yorkshire, Northern England, we decided to call our business Barnsley Motorworks because I realized from that I could build bikes, I could do all sorts of things. So it just gave me the confidence, but it also makes BMW Barnsley Motorworks and BMW won't let you use their logo or anything like that. So most of these independent shops, we put BMW in the initial somewhere or other. And so what do you do at the shop? What, what bikes are you working on? Obviously BMWs. Well, well old BMWs. The old stuff, anything from ninety, from the Second World War through till the, the end of the series, early nineties, that uh, the air-cooled BMWs with carburetors. That's what we work on, and we started working on some Triumphs and BSAs, Nortons. Um, yeah, that's that's what we do. We restore them. We paint them if we have to. We do the upholstery. We do pretty well everything. I send the machining out. And we do everything else from from the ground up, whatever needs doing. Way back, I mean, to to understand why you are where you are right now, I want I want to go way back. When you were fourteen, you did your your first adventure on a bicycle. Can you tell me about that? Uh, that was the Duke of Edinburgh Award. You probably had it in Canada too. And uh, Duke of Edinburgh it, Award, what is that? you had to do all these feats and then you'd get a bronze medal and then you had to do all these other feats. Then you could get a silver medal and all these other feats and you could get a gold medal. And I think the first year, a couple of friends and I, we had to hike a certain distance using maps and a compass, which we did, but there were floods. And I remember we swam across a, a flooded creek and we spent the weekend huddled up in a cave so we didn't get our Duke of Edinburgh award. So the next year, the same two friends and I decided to ride bicycles. And uh, I think we got about 30, 40 miles that first day. And then uh, 
we camped that night, but some lads, some ruffians beat us up on the side of the road. So don't travel by bicycle. It's too dangerous. So I've never traveled by bicycle ever since. <laughs> well, that's good. You have to learn those lessons, don't you? Because that's what keeps us safe in life is learning, you know, what works and what doesn't work. And clearly bicycles are just dangerous. Yeah, but I had a passion to travel. I used to read all these books, Francis Chichester and sailing books and and things like that. I just had a passion and other boys didn't seem much interested in, but it just was like a was just like a pee under the mattress of my soul. It was just yeah, it's just something you can't explain. I mean, it'd be easy to assume that you would just sort of give up on it after that experience, even those two experiences, really. I mean, you know, that the hiking in the cave didn't work out and, and then your bicycle trip doesn't work out. But at 17, you went out again. Uh, at 17, I started traveling on motorbikes and I'd make longer and longer journeys to teach myself the logistics and what was involved. And... Uh, just bit by bit, just to learn how to do it. That was all. What year are we talking about? Well, we're talking back in the early 70s. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you a f- funny story, if you like. Um, I, I, I wanted to sail around the world, and I read all these books on sailing, and I could tell a catch from a yawl, from this, from that. And I really was self-taught, and I used to go down to the wharves and I'd stand around where all the sailors came in, but I was very shy, believe it or not, and uh, no one would talk to me, and I was too shy to talk to anyone else, But so the door never opened. And then one day a friend of mine gave me a few of his brother's two-wheel magazines, and I walked home with them under my arm, maybe three miles. I sat down and I opened the first page, and it was talking about valves and springs, and it was way over my head. I had didn't have a clue. And I, I was so discouraged that I'd never understand this stuff. And I turned the page and it was a story of two Englishmen traveling overland to Australia. And in that episode, they were on a, a Norton and a Triumph and they were crossing the mountains in Afghanistan. And mate, the penny dropped and I realized I could sail around the world on a motorbike. And uh, I thought everyone who had a motorbike thought that way. I, I'm pretty stupid, really. Hmm. But, but that was my outlook on life, and and so that bike became a potential um, yacht for me to sail around the world in. So what did you do? You, you decided to pack up your bike and and go. Uh, first of all, I I finished my apprenticeship, and then I went in the bush. I had a what we call a utility. You might call it an El Camino, I suppose, or a pickup truck, small one. And I went and worked in the outback in Australia, and I actually ended up in Darwin and I flew to um, Indonesia and it freaked me out. I really had a culture shock. I spent six weeks there. I didn't know how to budget my money. I didn't know how to deal and it really troubled me. And by the time I got the handle on it, my money was gone, my time was gone and I caught a ship from Singapore to Western Australia. But And I worked there in Western Australia for two years but there's a saying, sleep on something. And while I slept on it, all the pieces fell into place. And uh, two years later, I, I had a motorbike and sidecar by then, and I put it on the, the ship from Fremantle and back to Singapore, and I rode around the world for about three and a half years. And I had no culture shock, no problem, nothing. And uh, because I'd been, it, it, it troubled me. And I put all the pieces into place in my head or in my soul or whatever. And uh, I just 
Yeah, just a kid going around the world. How did you end up with a sidecar? Well, I went into, um, I was working two jobs to save the money and, and one job was as a carpenter and at night I worked in a health studio. I, I went there and built myself up because I knew I'd lose weight on the journey. So I used to go in there and they needed a car park attendant. So I took a second job at night parking cars and there was a bike shop the other side and I used to go and look in there and one day I went in and asked the chappy how much bags would be. I had a Kawasaki 900. I'd had a BMW, a 900, but someone stole it. Australia was a convict settlement, you know, that stuff still goes on. <laughs> and uh, so I'd bought a secondhand Kawasaki 900 and, and thought I was God's gift to the world with it, by the way. And uh, it was going to cost me $400 for a set of bags and a luggage rack. And that was a lot of money back in the 790, 76, oh, 77. It was a lot of money. But they had a, a sidecar sitting in the back corner and it turned out it was the last of a run. The company had gone out of business and being a bit of a Scotsman, I, I figured $400, you don't get much space. And I just asked the chappy, what would a thing like that cost? And he said $600. And I did the arithmetic and thought, well, I'll purchase that. And a few weeks later I did and I took it home and I cobbled it on my motorbike and that became my pannier bags. And... Uh, yeah, it served me very well. You yeah. tried the sidecars just to carry your gear, but after a while it became your thing, didn't it? Like you, you stuck with it. Uh, a lot of people don't like sidecars, but certain eccentric people seem to be drawn to them in one form or other. So, Careful, um, <laughs> you're painting yourself here. <laughs> yeah, but I, I really enjoy them and I've, we've, um, I really, really enjoy sidecars, but a lot of motorcyclists don't like them. But uh, for me, they're very practical to travel with. It's like a poor man's four-wheel drive. You can go places that you, you can go a lot of places. It's a little bit more of a hassle than a bike sometimes, but sometimes it's got advantages over a bike too. So, um, yeah. So you went around the world. You said you spent two years on that. You come back to Australia. Then, then what? You go back to work and resume a normal life? Uh, no, I think I was gone for, I'd been gone for six years, including the time in the bush. I think it was about three years around the world, something like that. I tried to figure it out the other night, but I can't remember now. But I came home and I bought a bit of country and I went and farmed it. Uh, it's very, it was very hard for me to settle back in. And I farmed it. I farmed it with, um, I cleared the land with horses and crosscut saw and axe and, and I started I taught myself how to break in horses. I taught myself how to shoe horses. I taught myself how to make all the harness for them and I'd shoot wild bulls and uh, tan the leather. And eventually I started traveling on the horses. The first time I traveled, I led the horse for 200 miles with a pack bag on it, just so I could learn about what horses need on the road. And then the second time and all the other times afterwards, I'd always take a horse a riding horse, I'd take a pack horse, I'd take Mrs. Brown Dog, I'd take a rifle and I'd take a, a, some spare shoes and a few maps and a bit of food and a swag and, and I'd, I'd, the Aboriginal people say they go walk about, I'd go walk about. And what do you learn from that? Patience. And you learn to observe the country, you learn the lie of the land you start to understand the geography a lot better. You learn how to look after your animals. 
you just learn a lot of stuff and you learn to slow things down a lot, to be patient. Um, it's a lot to it, I suppose. Um, you learn about yourself, I suppose, too. During that time, did you, did you keep your bike? Yeah, but I had to. I kept it for a little while, but I had to sell it. I ran out of money, and that bike I went around the world on all those years. I sold for a thousand dollars. I just needed some money, so no. For about five years, I ended up with no transport, just horses. What got you back into getting another motorcycle? I stayed on that farm under sufferance. I didn't want to live in one place, and after about five or six years, I, I, I bought a little Datsun truck for. A couple of weeks. I'd had it a couple of weeks. I, I threw some saddles in there and a couple of dogs and a couple of rifles and a bit of my kit. And I was going down to southern New South Wales, about a thousand miles south, to, just to get a break. And I thought I could break in some ponies, but the vehicle gave me trouble. And I got to just as I got to Sydney, and I ended up. Cut a long story short, I got a a job at the racetrack riding horses in the morning for a chap called Tommy Smith. He's the Chappie, who's probably won the most Melbourne Cups in Australia, he's, he's, it's funny that I just I, I just landed in his lap. And uh, so I lived there for six months in the stables, riding horses and uh, looking after horses. And I just had this – it's a long story, so I, I won't tell it, but I just had this pee under my mattress to go to the Philippines. And I went to the Philippines. I ended up working with my wife, doing some volunteer work. We ended up coming to Australia and I had no transport and we're in Sydney. I'm not from Sydney, but I've, I've lived there. But I knew that we've got Wentworth Avenue runs up from Central Station. We call it Motorcycle Alley because there's one of each kind of motorcycle shop on that short strip of road. And we went up there and we couldn't afford this, we couldn't afford that. And... Uh, I didn't even go in the BMW shop because I, I knew I couldn't afford anything in there. We went and sat down to have a meat pie and a hamburger and I needed to have a wee. So I thought I'll just duck over the BMW shop and see if I can use that toilet. And when I walked in, there was the bike I'd invented in my head as I traveled all those lonely places those years ago. I'd invented a bike in my head for long distance travel and everyone told me no mate that'll never work no mate you don't know what you're talking about and uh it was an r80gs and it was well used it had a, i think 142,000 kilometers on it but uh that was the bike i'd invented and uh so i went back over the next week i kept trying to bargain them down a little bit politely until the owner came down the owner of the shop mr tom burns himself he came down and hey <laughs> He 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 um he ran me a new one and told me the, the price they'd give it to me for and that was that and I think uh it was every penny we had but anyway we purchased that and then we my family came from Cape York they were early explorers in Australia I didn't know that until I'd been around the world already once but they were there's many books written about my family and I thought well I'll go back up to Cape York and see where my family came from and if there's any relatives left. So Amy and I, we worked our way up the east coast of Australia. We, f we picked vegetables and we worked on a cattle station. We ended up, Cape York is where the nose of Queensland meets Papua New Guinea. 
We went up there and we needed a new visa for Amy to come back to Australia. And so we decided to bob across to Papua New Guinea and we couldn't get the visa there. So we bobbed across to uh, Honiara, Guadalcanal, the Solomon Islands. And the Australian consul there was very nice. And he said, look, I'll see what I can do for you. And uh, he bent the rules in our favor and gave Amy another visa. So we ended up, we had to come back to retrieve our bike from the Aboriginal settlement up on Cape York. And we went back to Sydney. We always had this plan that I'd go back and ride around the world. And our daughter was born. We, we, um, we'd gone back to Asia, make a long story short. We put a sidecar on the bike when our daughter was born. And then, uh, we went to China for a year. We came back. Australia was in the grips of recession. We had about $10,000 saved. I'd had it in the bank and, um, it was available to me. And so we put the bike on an aeroplane to Singapore with ourselves. And then, uh, we just went walkabout, and then about 10 years later, we arrived in America. Amy, what was it like when you first met David? What, what did you see in him? Well, wild. <laughs> <laughs> A wild man. <laughs> but he's so gentle and good looking. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he had his long hair, long beard, and so my I the first time I saw him really looks like wild for me. <laughs> you were doing volunteer work at the same place that he was. That's how you met. Yes. What were you doing? I'm teaching the children Sunday school and doing outreaches and and the church. So when, when you find out about David and you realize he's a traveler, I mean, I think that was probably obvious when you see him arrive, but I mean, you find out more about him. Was it intriguing? Was it something you were interested in doing, going out, the, the idea of going off and traveling away from your home? No. <laughs> <laughs> good, good, honest answer, Amy. So what made you go then? Oh, so because uh, I'm not used to the cold, and so when we arrived in, in uh, Sydney and it's starting to get to winter and David was so scared that maybe I'd die from the cold. So he <laughs> said, I'm going to take you to the north. So he, so I hopped in his uh, back of his uh, motorbike. But I learned to use, um, I get used to, to ride also at the back of the motorbike because I was uh, um a youth leader in my in my province. I used to make a schedule for all the activities in the church. So I I used to that, and so no question. I jumped at the back of his bike, and then we keep driving, driving, and driving. And I, it's like it become a normal to me. <laughs> First time I sleep on the tent, <laughs> everything is like new to me. And at, at one point you got pregnant and you guys are going to have what turns out to be your daughter. What was your idea for being on the road at that point? Did, did you start to get the feeling of you want to go back home or, or was your idea that it was fine to be out doing these things? No, because when I was pregnant, we went back uh, after we come back from Solomon Island, found out in uh, Sydney that I was pregnant. I'm not sick. Uh, 
I don't have any sign of uh, pregnancy. I thought that David just like, oh, maybe you got worms from uh, Solomon Island. We need to see the doctor. <laughs> and then we found out it was a big worms. Uh, so we called our daughter, you know, how do your daddy th- think that I had a uh, worms? Uh, it was you. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> that's, quite, that's quite a thought, quite a legacy for her. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, yeah, that's what it is. You know, <laughs> before we go back to, the, to Asia, we need to go and see the doctor here because it's everything is free in, um, in Australia. So we went to get, have a checkup and then um, found out. So we keep, we... We flew to uh, Singapore and um, we did uh, bus. Uh, what they taking? Public transport. Public transport. We travel. I was pregnant. I we went trekking up uh, uh, up north in Thailand. I was, still I was pregnant riding elephants because I have no morning sickness. I have nothing. It's just <laughs> like my stomach growing. <laughs> and we went to the Philippines and then um, decided that. I don't want to have a baby in the Philippines. Uh, I said, oh, maybe they think I had money. So they, instead of normal, they might cut me open. So I, we went, I decided to go back to Australia to have her. When most people have a, their first baby in particular, you sort of get the feeling of, well, it's time to settle down, you know, time to buy the house and become the normal quote-unquote family. Um, what was your thought process? No, we didn't get that memo made or that email or whatever. Did you get the little booklet that gave you those instructions? No, we didn't get it. Oh, if we got it, we didn't read it. No, we just... Yeah, nothing. There's no problem. So why I never think about it? When she was four months old, I think we went up to Queensland to show the baby to my mother, and there were floods that year. And the sidecar. She's in the sidecar, and we we cross these vast floodwaters, and uh, with the baby, and we have a picture of we were taking our tent down one morning, and we had her on a sheepskin rug under the. Uh, under the sidecar to keep her out of the rain while mum and dad took the tent down. So um, yeah, maybe family services in, in America might get us for everything we've done wrong with, I suppose. <laughs> it's too late now. <laughs> There's a statute of limitations yeah. on that stuff. <laughs> so, so what happens just, then? Does, does that give you the impetus to think, hey, I can do this? No. It's hard to explain, but some people have kind of got a pioneer gene, I suppose. We're not the smartest of people, but we put up with a lot and we don't expect a lot. So we just walk in the rain and do stupid stuff like that that other people are smart enough not yeah. to do. We just we just go and do it. If we have to dig a big hole here, we just get a pick and a shovel and we dig it. We're, our neighbours would talk for about a week about it and then they'd get Billy Bob to bring his backhoe and then there'd be about eight of them standing around, but our hole's already dug, you know. Um, we're not better than them, but we just don't think the same way as other people. We don't think about having all the comfortable things. We're just as happy to sleep on the floor if we come to your place. It's probably better for us. <laughs> it's just some people are different. Yeah, I, I do watch her as long as she's not sick. She's, she's healthy and um, she, she's very healthy. Never 
unhappy. So were you traveling get, at this point or did you just decide at the somewhere around here that you're going to head off and, and travel? No, no, we came to Sydney and we ended up getting a bed sit. I think you know that term. It's like old Victorian buildings that they've split up into rooms. And where we were was where all the people on the methadone program lived and all the drunken Swedish sailors that had jumped ship all those years ago. We lived in a very bad neighborhood. And, uh, but it was cheap and somewhere to live. And actually, those people were thrilled that these, for them, we were straight people, that we went and lived there and had a baby. And uh, they used to. They straight out. They. They 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 loved us those people because we bothered to go and live in amongst them and 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 have a little baby and we we lived there for nine months I think yeah and I had a job in Australia as a eleven months because eleven months and I was I had a job as a carpenter I was a a, a union shop steward for a hundred men on a job. And I used to walk to work every day and we used to save our money and uh, we just had this idea that one day we'd take this motorbike and sidecar and let's like a... And you said you'd take me around the world. Yeah, yeah, we thought we'd go to England anyway and Australians, some of us from my generation still have this yearning for the mother country or I don't know what it is. I don't know what they did to us, the British, but... uh, so we thought we'd just ride to England, you know, and we just kept riding. For two years. We just, yeah, we just kept riding. We just kept riding. And, uh, but we purposely burned our bridges in Australia. Bit by bit, we'd burn our bridges. So in a sense, we made it difficult to return. Um, as far as travellers go, we're pretty competent. We're pretty decent. It's not a competition, but it comes naturally to us. We make some stupid mistakes occasionally. But it was just something that we could do and we were part of a community when we did that. We were part of this transient community of people that travel around the world. This, we just got to like those people. We got to like to be part of, part of those people. Stay with us because we have a lot more coming up. My next question is what it's like for them traveling with a baby and their answer may surprise you. But first, let me take a minute to thank one of the sponsors that helped make this episode possible for you this week, IMS Products. IMS is a name that's been on racers, toolboxes, and motorcycles for over 40 years. Why? Because they specialize in making top quality parts for motorcycles. And now that 40 plus years of experience is what you get when you buy a set of IMS foot pegs for your bike. IMS has a complete line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs for most models that are designed specifically to be incredibly tough. So much so that they guarantee them for life. Yeah, life. And they're made in the USA. But on top of that, They're designed for our heavy, loaded adventure bikes. They're designed to keep your foot in the pegs. They're designed not to clog up with mud and garbage in the peg. And they're designed to give you the added leverage that you need for control without sacrificing access to your brake and shifter lever by design. That is important. Not just any foot peg will do. Drop by their website, www.imsproducts.com. Or if you see them at a show, shoot them an email. Let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider radio well, 
what was it like to have a baby with you while you're traveling? Did did it start off as a hassle or, or a problem? No, no uh, problem, but we. No, I think uh, it was this Australian man in Pakistan sometime. I think it, it was must have been Pakistan. He came up to me and he said, "Mate, it must be bloody difficult traveling with a baby." And I looked at him for a moment and I said, "Mate, it must be bloody difficult traveling without a baby," because when you travel. They don't understand the Pakistanis or the Indians or the Afghans or whoever. They can't really understand why this man is in their country without his family, but they cannot understand why a woman is traveling by herself. They think she must have been thrown out by her family. So they can't really relate to, but they can understand a family. They don't know what you're doing there, but they understand you're a family. And so a lot of doors open for us. Mm. that maybe didn't open for other people. I think it was an advantage, to be quite honest, to be a family. You're not a threat. We're not a threat. Um, And in Africa where it got really, really difficult, and uh, I think we made it through. We were the last people to cross Zaire before it collapsed into civil war. And a few people had tried in the in the period before us, not many because it was a kind of a no-go zone, but they all got robbed or raped or had their vehicles confiscated or got sent back. But I think part of our advantage was we were a family and, and that registers with people, even soldiers in a civil war. So it, I think that helped us really. Um, and I don't want to, I don't want to sound reckless or sound like we have a lot of bravado or something, but I think it did help us. Um, yeah, we'd like to go traveling again, but I think I'm too old to make any more babies. (laughs) 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 We, We weren't looking for effect and we don't try to take unfair advantage. We don't, we never tried that. We never, that wasn't our game, but as we look back, we realized Plus, it was fun. And I don't know how much fun it was for our daughter. <laughs> she was okay. I think the last period of time in Africa might have been a bit stressful for her because there was a lot of uncertainty and we kept getting arrested and all that sort of stuff. So um, maybe that was a little bit overkill. We'll see. Mattia, that, that's your daughter. Yes. Mattia was born, I, I think, in 88. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and you traveled basically. I guess you traveled with her for ten years. Um, well, first we went to when she was nine months old. We went to China for a year, and uh, after that we went back to Australia. But we traveled all over China on trains and buses, and uh, with Matea, I used to carry her in a backpack, and then uh, we went back to Australia. We got the motorbike and then she was two when we arrived in Singapore. And when we we flew from Johannesburg to Miami at the end of 1998 and she was 99. 11, end of 1999 and she was 11 years old. And uh, she didn't seem any the worse for wear really. Um, we tried to teach our daughter to be tolerant. We tried to teach her to be generous. We tried to teach her to be hardy, to be able to survive. We tried to teach her 
what you actually need in life and what you don't need in life. And I don't know how good a job we did, but that's what we tried to impart to her. What about things like schooling while you're on the road? I homeschool her for 10 years. Yeah. In Queensland, there's a thing called the School of Distance Education. Kids don't have to go to school in Australia because of the distance. And I suppose they do it on a computer now. I don't know. But in my time, they did it by wireless or they did it by correspondence. So every year, the it was called the Brisbane School of Distance Education, I believe. They just gave us a year's worth of schoolwork, and she'd generally... And we send it back. We'd send it back for marking. She generally did it in about three months, and then we'd ask for the next year, but there was a point where they wouldn't <laughs> give us any more. <laughs> no, the first, the, first, um, the first year, she did the uh, first grade and the second grade, and... I think she's uh, she's good. She graduated as a cum laude, not that bad. It was very, very difficult. Now, don't take this. I don't normally. Um, we used to go to church quite a bit. We don't now. We still read my Bible, but I don't go because there's too much politics, too much intolerance, too much stupidity. But the people in the church they were really critical of what we did. And that was probably one of the greatest burdens we had on that journey was everywhere we went, be it in England or Switzerland or Australia, wherever we were, we, all, we got a lot of criticism because in those days it wasn't fashionable, I suppose, to, to homeschool your child and all the naysayers. And that was really, really hard. And we had no role model and we had to decide, am I just really, really selfish or am I doing the best thing for my daughter? And it was really a struggle. In, in that sense, with all the self-righteous naysayers that um, criticised us, but we we just thought it was our daughter would be better off if we kept doing what we were doing, and I'll know one day and if I made a happy. mistake or not. Yeah, she was very happy. Yeah, she's happy. So what do you think your daughter got out of the trip that she wouldn't otherwise have got in just a normal schooling? Oh, and maybe dysentery. <laughs> <laughs> I meant, I meant good stuff. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I don't know if she still speaks French, but I speak French like an English person trying to speak French. But I listened to her French, and she sounded French to me. Uh, one time in northern Norway. Um old housefrau was talking to me and I couldn't understand a thing she was saying and I just kept nodding, yes, yes. And my daughter translated for me and uh, I think she spoke German. I don't know if she still remembers all that, but I think she... Yes. We found when uh, she came up here to go to university and she was working to put herself through university in a restaurant, we had no money but she had made a little scholarship and she was sending money to her friend in another university, I think monthly, to help her. Uh, I don't think the little, other little girl got such a good scholarship or something, but I think our daughter learned to be generous. I think our daughter learned to be very brave. Um, for the last two years of her schooling in America, we couldn't cope anymore. America was very difficult for us because there was always a time constraint on everything and a lot of demands, a lot of foolish schedules, and it was really difficult for us. It still is to some extent, 
So we couldn't cope the last couple of years of her schooling, so we sent her to a private school. But immediately that she got there, she had to take all her past life and dig a hole and bury it because overnight she had to become a normal American school child. So in some ways that was sad for us, but she had to suddenly fit in. And if she told them about her life, they would not have believed her. Uh, There was one funny incident in her last year of school. Some boys and girls were driving somewhere to some event and they got a flat tire and our daughter had to get out and change it for them. (laughs) (laughs) Totally within her comfort zone. Yes. Yeah. So uh, we don't know what our daughter thinks about the travel now. We should take her kids on a short uh, Yeah. We we went through some real difficult stuff crossing the jungle in Africa. It might have been, it was, I don't know if it was too much for her or not. She coped with it at the time, but uh, it was pretty difficult, um, that crossing from probably across Republic Africa Central and then uh, Zaire and into Rwanda. And that was that was a pretty difficult time. It was a, probably a little bit more difficult than I would have liked to take a child on, to be honest. But we had no choice. What kind of difficult? You mentioned getting arrested. Getting arrested, getting... I held her at arm's length one day while soldiers tried to beat me up. Um, we got arrested by rebel soldiers too, taken into the jungle by these strange... These, <laughs> warriors with leopard skin bands and feathers and AK-47 rifles, and we got interrogated way back in the jungle. We we had no choice about being there. (laughs) We were waylaid and taken off into the jungle. And uh, I suppose that was stressful for a little girl. You've been interrogated in French. Um, They think you are the vanguard of the American Expeditionary Force that's come to overthrow the nation, and you're there with your wife and daughter. Um, and then we would, some days we made 25 miles from early morning to late at night digging, digging and uh, cutting saplings to make bridges. And it was a little bit like Humphrey Bogart pulling the Africa Queen through the swamps. And there was another day we pushed the bike for 30 kilometers uphill. Very, it was in very hilly country. And the last, we pushed it for 30 kilometers with her, but she was so exhausted and we'd get it halfway up a hill and I'd tell Amy, quickly throw a rock behind the wheel and we'd lay on the ground for 10 minutes and then we'd get up and we'd push again. And the last, the last after 30 kilometres, she was just so exhausted, we just sat her in the sidecar while we pushed the bike. And I don't know, we had rivers to cross and a lot of strange things. Um, it's probably a little bit much for a child and, and getting arrested twice by the military and then once by the rebels. Um just all that stuff. The, we got searched at gunpoint. We got we got searched not at gunpoint, but we had no choice but to be searched. And I suppose we got searched almost daily. Um, it was yeah, maybe a bit hard for a kitty, but it's character building. It was character building for me anyway. So does she not say anything about this now? We don't talk about it. Um, no, but I think she always say like when it's a uh, happen uh, that I think she learned from that too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
She, she, we, we all learned a lot. She of, had faith in God. That's what yeah, Mary Jane's. We, we had, an, in the midst of that, we had an amazing peace, like I've never experienced peace before in my life. It was like this just unbelievable, well, not I mean, unbelievable might be too difficult, too much of a word, but really, really stringent, really difficult, really uncertain circumstances and not enough food to eat. And, are we, are we going to – is the, the track kept deteriorating? Will we ever get through, you know, digging, 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 digging? Oh, but when and then uh, – but sorry. at the same time, we had this incredible peace that we'd never experienced it to that level before. And so I suppose she learned that they're just uh, – some things are about, again, above our pay grade, so why yeah. worry about them? And sometimes when we, he, she saw us like desperate. And he will, she will say, "Don't worry, don't worry, mom, or don't worry, dad." Yeah. She's the, sometimes she's more the one giving us more strength to yeah. keep going. Um, there was a time in crossing from Gilgit to Chitral in northern Pakistan, where we kept crossing one fast-flowing river after another, after another, after another, and it it was. She was we didn't even know if the Shandur Pass was open because it was because of snow and there was no way we could turn back because our sidecar was on. All the rivers came from the sidecar side of the bike so they'd make a wake around it so I could at least keep one cylinder running while we pushed and levered and to get the bike across. And But we couldn't turn around because we wouldn't get back across those rivers and we didn't know if the pass was open and we just kept going and going. The road kept deteriorating and I remember laying down that first night on the ground to go to sleep and I didn't say anything to my family. I, I don't talk about that stuff at the time, but I remember laying there and I'm lying there thinking, wow, this is getting worse and worse and, you know, what have I gotten us into now? And I remember laying there on the ground and this little, our daughter would have been two and a half, and I remember rubbing her hands through my hair saying, don't worry, Daddy, we'll be all right. And I hadn't said a jolly thing, mate. And uh, it was like, yeah, David, get your act together. And I just rolled over and went to sleep. It was just like from the mouths of babes. It's just what I needed to hear. So um, we went through a lot. We were a pretty tight-knit little family. We were like this little three-man army <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that watched each other's backs. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I hope she learned something, mate. I hope she, I hope she did. Um, she must have learned something anyway. If Maybe she learned not to travel around the world on a motorbike and sidecar. I'm not sure. <laughs> yes, she did. She, she went, but not the way. She yeah. said that, but not the way we do it. Yeah. How did you end up in the United States? Like, why not go back to Australia? In the 70s, when I traveled around the world, I came here. And it, it embarrassing enough, I came here for – I was in England – and I caught a ship from Southampton to Fort Lauderdale. And I two days later, I went to work. I've never had a lot of money. And I worked here. And then I went to Puerto Rico for three months. And then I came back. I rode up the East Coast. I went to Canada. It's truth, mate, Canada's cold in the middle of the year. It's, in the middle, it's July and it's bloody cold. It's truth. I don't know how you can live up there. But... Um, so, but I'd been treated really well in America that first time I came here, and I learned a lot from the Americans. I learned a lot about generosity. I learned more about hospitality. I learned to think a little bit bigger. Australians, at least my generation, we tended to think smaller. 
Americans think bigger. So we'd gotten down to South Africa and I was working in South Africa. We were just about broke and we didn't have either the money or the energy or the courage to drive back up across through what we'd been through in Africa. So we deliberated and we'd entered the green card lottery before we left Switzerland and we'd been drawn. So we decided to come to America. Um, to go back to Australia, you might think listening to me that I sound like an Australian. I'm not sure, but I've forgotten where the goalposts were. I don't think exactly like Australians anymore. I adopted things from different peoples. If I went back there, I might be an oddity, but at least here in America, I'm just a foreigner. So it was just easier for us to come here. We didn't exactly expect to stay for as long as we did, but our daughter married an American, so now we're stuck here because our, our daughter's here and our grandchildren are here, so I suppose they're going to have to bury us here now. So um, we came back. We came back to a different America, and I think it's the the world has changed. And I'm sure if I went back to Australia, I'd be disappointed, I think. But we came here and the generosity and the hospitality that I received back in the 70s is gone now. People are frightened. People are, uh, people are different now a little bit. It's there. You can find it, but you've got to look for it. It's like someone watered down the mix a little bit. So we came back to a different place than I was when I came here in the late 70s. It's, it's vastly different America. Um, or if I changed and America just stayed the same, I'm not sure. <laughs> and now the uh, Barnsley Motor Works is, is what you do every day. It's what, you know, you live off of. And I'm assuming that that's going to be your future now. No more travel. Oh, we want them to go back. Oh, I'd love to go traveling, mate. We talk about it. Um, I never owned stuff before. Now I have stuff. And... Uh, yeah. I'd rather, I'd rather not have stuff, to be honest, but to run a business, we've had to purchase old bikes and tools and equipment and we've had to build buildings. and So we're here, but in a sense we're still traveling because this is a foreign land for us and we don't really understand it. So we're still on our journey. We just slowed down a bit, but we wonder. We, we'd we love hope to, in a couple of years we, we can. We'd love to go traveling again, mate. We really, do, you know, the, the way we were because we miss the spontaneity of life. We miss the people that we meet traveling um, and the adventure, just the uncertainty of, of situations and um well, I mean, you guys are sitting at, at home right now, and I'm assuming the, the, the cracking we're listening to is the wood stove heating up and cooling down as we talk. Yeah. yeah, sorry about that. No, that's fine. It was really interesting that you mentioned something in our email correspondence before we did this interview. You, you'd said about, I guess it was when you came to the United States that you realized that you were poor and probably always been fairly poor. Yeah, I look back and I've been poor. But I never knew I was poor because, okay, we don't have a bridge to get across a river, but we can swim sort of thing. We'll get across the river. And I didn't just get hung up that I didn't have a bridge or I didn't have a boat. I'll swim. And I didn't. And I, I don't say that to feel sorry for myself. It was a revelation. Unfo it's strange. When we came here, we lived in a, a slum. 
they call it a hood in America. It was where there were constant shootings and people getting killed, and it was probably the worst neighborhood in all of West Palm Beach because we had no money. We came to America with $625. Next time I'll come, I'm going to bring about $50,000 minimum because I couldn't go through all that again. <laughs> but, um, but I end up working as a carpenter on Palm Beach Island for the rich and famous, putting up eight-piece crown moles and hanging double mahogany wooden doors. And, and, and I would come home and we sat at a little table that we'd made from a tile box and, and four bits of off-cut timber and uh, some chairs we'd picked up on the street. And uh, we didn't think anything of that, but just the contrast of the people and the way people lived, suddenly I realised we were poor and we've been probably poor all our life, but but we just, if I knew I was poor, I probably wouldn't have travelled because I would have used it as, as an excuse not to travel, but I didn't know. I just I just accepted you know, I'm not handsome either and I'm not very strong, but I just accept those things and I do the best that I can with what I've got. So, no, and come we on. Didn't Amy have... said you were very good looking. We already heard oh, that. Oh, that's right. Can, <laughs> can, you, can you delete that from the interview? I don't want people to think I'm ugly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tip X that out or something, would you please? <laughs> you know, a lot of people, they think you've got to be rich to travel and I always get that. And it really peeves me. Oh, you must have a lot of money. Oh, you must have a lot of money. And I think if you don't want to do anything with your life, that's your business. You know, if you want to do this or that, that's your business. And I don't make any comment, but don't don't, uh, don't label us with that, that we must be rich to travel because we never had any money. But at the same time when we traveled, you know, I carried spare parts and I fixed a little bit on Sam's bike, but I put the cylinders back on his friend's bike I gave my spare parts away if people needed them. I never charged anybody. My wife cooked countless meals for other travelers. Once a week, if we went out to a a cheap restaurant in India or Thailand or somewhere to eat, I'd always try to pay for one other traveler's meal because I thought if I can't afford to do this and I can't afford to be traveling. And we had a really slim budget. When I look back, it was slim. You know, we we started in the 90s on 60 American dollars a week. That's what we had to spend. But with that, we sometimes fed untold amount of people and I'd pay for a meal here. I'd fix people's bikes. And I don't know, we just, we just, we didn't notice that we didn't have very much money. Um, and I, I don't say that to, I'm not crying poor mouth. It's just the way it was. The, yes, happy. The, the, there's some English people you travel, you meet traveling with a, a, a lot less money than we had. Some English people have got a death wish, you know. They just <laughs> they take a very small amount of money and they head to India and run out of money and, and end up begging on the streets and what have you. And I'm not on that level. I'm afraid I'm not that brave. So you mentioned Sam there. You're talking about Sam Manicom. You you met him while he was on his trip and you guys were on yours. Yeah. Where was that? And he was trapped. That was, I'm saying it's Jodhpur. It wasn't Jodhpur. No, Jodhpur Jodhpur is Mark Manley. And then we saw them that we're coming from Pakistan. Anyway, down in in Rajasthan, it might have been Jaisalmer. Jaisalmer. And he was traveling with a chappie called uh, Mark Manley. And we'd met Mark a couple of times previously. And uh, Mark's cylinder studs were pulling out of the alloy of the... um, 
crankcase. And uh, he's on his way to Australia. He was on his way to Australia. And so we we fixed it the next day for him because I was carrying helicoils and a helicoil kit and all that because I had a sidecar. So I could carry all that stuff. And I thought if I don't need it, someone else might need it. So I'll just carry it. And that's where we met Sam. And I think Sam was traveling with Birgit. Mm-hmm. I, I seem to recall. And uh, we probably spent a, a day or so together and they went on their way. And Sam was writing a book at the time, which I thought was very peculiar because I thought, what's there to write about, mate? You know, this is just what we do. It's like, oh, well. And I thought that was pretty odd, but I didn't say anything, but I did find it peculiar. That was. Yeah. Do you guys enjoy the security of, of your home now? Uh, you know, is, is there a certain amount of... Um, well, I mean, because we talked about, you know, a little bit there about possessions and how, and you mentioned about how, you know, they sort of come with a, a certain weight to them, a responsibility. But is there a certain amount of security that you get from the, having the home that you have now that you didn't have on the road? Mm. I I sit down at night. I might knock off at 8 o'clock at night, 9 o'clock at night. I sit down. If I have enough money, I, I have a glass of wine. I sit in the chair and I know certain days of the week there's a British mystery on or a British drama. I'll turn the telly on and my wife's milling around doing something and the dog's lying on the floor and I sit there and I think I must be the richest man in the world. And uh, so there is that. It is nice. And when we travelled, if I ever – I was going to write a book some years ago. I thought I would call it Without Walls because when you travel, you never have walls. I do appreciate that. I do like it when I come in at night and I can sit down in my chair for a few hours. But eh, I'd swap places to go traveling again. Um, this is okay. When you travel, we, we built some guest rooms here and we, we planted an orchard and we made a garden. And I thought, well, when we traveled, we wanted to stop somewhere <clears throat> for a few days or a week just to get our, our ducks back in a row. And But we didn't want to stop traveling, but we just needed to consolidate. So we built this place here, and I built it hoping that if someone was traveling and they were on the road a long time, they could stop here and consolidate for a few days or a week. And uh I know you need that when you're traveling. It doesn't mean you want to stop traveling, but you've just been, you just need to stop and have a little bit of privacy, a little time to catch up, a little time to think. So um, six or one, half a dozen, the other, mate, it's it's nice being here and I accept it. But if um, we had to go traveling tomorrow, I would have no regrets, none at all. Amy, how about you? Yeah, I do. I can. I even could uh, wait for David if he say tomorrow. I go, I jump also. When we first moved here, we worked here really hard for six weeks to get the place in order, and then we left our daughter. And Amy and I flew on a shuttle flight to Thailand, and then we went up to the north of Thailand, and we got in contact with uh, a Kareni general. And we went into Burma, into the Civil War for a period of time. We carried medical supplies, which we'd taken. And to be honest, I came back from that 
more inspired than I'd been for a long, long time. And when we'd arrived in, we'd been seven years in America and we flew that shuttle flight, that long shuttle flight to Bangkok. We got to Bangkok. I knew it was a 58 bus, I think, that you could get from the airport into Bang Lampu. But they just changed the airport a couple of weeks before. So we got we got there. I think, oh, wow. We didn't have a lot of money. So I went and found another traveler, I think an Englishman. I said, I bet you need to go into Bang Lampu. You can share a taxi with us. So that, that cut our costs. We got into Bang Lang Pu at about one o'clock in the morning and there's tuk-tuks and there's people selling, you know, squid and, and noodles and you can smell the klongs behind. You can you can smell the two-stroke and the diesel and it's muggy. And I stood there just trying to get my bearings because I've got to go and find us a room. And I just, it just, I just said to myself, you know, you're home. I'd never felt at home so much in the last seven years. I really just felt, wow, I'm back where I belong. And that, that sounds a bit strange, doesn't it? But um, I just quite like, I just, I just quite like to be uh, in Asia or Africa's a little bit more different, but I miss that. I miss that very much. I miss the living in the West can be a bit clinical sometimes and people all retreat into their houses at night and they've all got their own lives and uh, I find that a little bit odd these days. I don't know if I answered your question very well, I'd make a good politician, wouldn't I? That was David and Amy Woodburn from their shop and home in Georgia, United States. Adventure Rider Radio is built on a model of advertising and listener support to make it work. So if you like what you're hearing here on Adventure Rider Radio and our other show, Raw, and you'd like to become a supporter, drop by the website www.adventureriderradio.com and click on the support button. Anything $10 or more is going to get you a sticker. Anything $50 or more will get you not only a special place in our heart, but a mention right here on the show. So I'd like to give a special thank you to those who have supported with $50 or more this week. Special thanks to William Smith and Gabriel Giudici. Thank you very much. And of course, we appreciate any support in any amount we get from you, the listener. It is what makes this show possible. Thank you. I just want to remind you this episode was made possible for you today in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com, Green Chili Adventure Gear at www.greenchiliadv.com, and MotoBreeze Chain Oilers, www.motobreeze.com. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, who works tirelessly in the background, and you never hear from her. Not my choice. 
My name's Jim Martin. Thanks for listening. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. If you can. If it's not, if it's wintertime, I don't know, I guess back episodes. Don't forget about another show, though. We have ARR Raw, which comes out once a month. We just had one come out. Drop by the website, www.adventureriderradio.com. And of course, you can get all of our shows anywhere where you find podcasts. If you matter of fact, if you find a place where they're not, let us know, because it should be there. Thanks very much. See you next week. I am Max McGillivray from The Great Fruit Adventure. If you know what is good for you, you need to listen to Adventure Rider Radio. Please. <laughs>